0: Let's pray. Father, we ask now for your aid through your spirit as we consider your word. We pray that you would give alert minds. We pray that you would remove sluggishness and disinterest. We pray that your spirit would open our hearts and our eyes to see the truths of Christ, who he really is, and the truths about ourselves, who we really are. So, Lord, please bless now this time our word, that your word is our life. Allow us now to feed on it for our good and for your glory. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Several years ago in Israel, a woman decided to surprise her mom by buying her a new mattress. The delivery man hauled the old one away, and a much more comfortable one was put in its place. When the elderly mother returned, she was aghast. What have you done? Where is my mattress? The daughter was confused. You mean that lumpy old mattress you've slept on for decades? Well, they hauled it away, of course. No, her mother said, we must find it. I stuffed all of my money into that mattress. She ran downstairs, but it was too late. The garbage truck had already come and taken it away. The money stuffed mattress was gone. Well, they immediately called the trash service, and a massive search began at the city dump. Guards were even stationed to keep out treasure seekers who heard about what happened on the news. But the mattress was never found her entire life savings. One million dollars was in that mattress. And just like that, it was gone. If your Bibles are opened already to Matthew 25, keep them there. If not, please turn to Matthew chapter 25. And we see at the beginning of chapter 24... The disciples asked Jesus privately as he sat at the Mount of Olives, what sign would signal the coming, your coming at the end of the age? Jesus proceeds then in chapter 24 to speak to them about the last days. And he makes it clear that the end would not come immediately, but it would only come after a considerable amount of time and troubles. In the verses that Andrew just read, Jesus speaks of what his disciples can and cannot know. And on the basis of both, he gave some specific words of instruction. And we know that Jesus often spoke in parables. And in these two chapters, which are known as the Olivet Discourse, he tells six of them. The parable of the fig tree, 2432, teaches that there are certain signs which indicate the season of his return but not the exact day or hour. We're not meant to know that. We don't. No one does except the Father, which is why every single prediction of when Jesus will come back has been proven wrong. In fact, Jesus will return at a time we don't expect. So rather than wasting our time trying to figure out when he will return, we must focus on being ready at all times. The two short parables at the end of chapter 24, the thief and the wise and wicked servant, warns of the unexpectedness of Jesus' return, his coming before you expect. And the parable of the ten bridesmaids in verses 1 through 13, which we considered last July on a much warmer Lord's Day, That parable stresses the need to be prepared in the face of unexpected delay. Jesus will return, or his return, later than you expect. All ten bridesmaids were invited to the wedding reception, but only five brought oil for their lamps, which represents genuine saving faith. Jesus concludes that parable in verse 13, with a call for watchfulness. Watch therefore, for you neither know the day nor the hour. And then he goes right into another parable to describe what this watchfulness should look like. Verse 14, for it or the kingdom of heaven, which which he references in verse one, For the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also... He who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more You've been faithful over little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, "You wicked and slothful servant! You knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, who has, will be given more; will be given." and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think the point of this parable is that as we wait expectantly, we must work diligently. Slaves in the ancient world often enjoyed significant responsibility and authority. And to be entrusted with cash assets like this indicates that they would have been understood to be a type of partner in the master's affairs. Now, when we, heard the, when we hear the word talent, we think of something like Yo-Yo Ma playing the cello or a quarterback throwing a pass 60 yards in the air to the perfect spot where his receiver can catch it, even though he's double covered. In fact, I read that our English word talent, meaning some sort of skill, is actually derived from this parable. But the Greek meaning of talent in this parable is a weight of money. It was from 60 to 80 pounds, and it was used to measure gold or silver. The NIV Study Bible calls this parable the parable of the bags of gold. Now, how much a talent was worth could vary, but it, was most, it most likely amounted to 20 years' worth of wages. So at $20 an hour today, pre-taxes, one talent would be about $800,000. Two talents, $1.6 million. Five talents, $4 million. These were massive sums of money. The first two servants immediately felt the responsibility of their assignment. And Jesus says they went at once. So immediately, without delay, they went at once to work. And they set up some sort of business. And they worked with the capital to make the money grow. And grow it did. They got a 100% return on their master's money. And that could not have happened without hard work and risk-taking. These guys expended themselves in growing their master's money, and it paid off. A little bit of a different story with the third servant. He took the talent he'd been given and he buried it. According to rabbinic law, burying property was conceived of as the safest possible course of action and therefore it would have absolved the servant of any liability. He was unwilling to work or take any risk. Conservative, safe, and comfortable. He didn't want to be bothered with this money. He may have been his master's servant, but the only person he was really willing to serve was himself. Even though it took a really, really, really long time, the master finally returned to settle the accounts, which implies that the servants had been given the money specifically for the purpose of making a profit. Put yourself in the place of the first two servants. Imagine how excited it would have been to finally see your master return and to let him know that you had doubled his money. And imagine how proud the master must have been to hear of their good work. Well done, good and faithful servant. Since you've been faithful over a little... I'll set you over much. And just think, if the little was 1.6 and 4 million, this master must have been incredibly wealthy. Enter, he says, into the joy of your master. He gave them an invitation to partake of all of his wealth and blessing. Everything that I enjoy is yours to enjoy as well it's probably safe to say that the third servant was not quite as excited to see the master return. And after observing his interaction with the other two, you would think that he might have expressed some level of shame or embarrassment. Maybe even sheepishly saying something like, sorry, I didn't do quite as good as these other guys did. But no, he attempts to defend and excuse himself by attacking his master's character. You're a hard man. You exploit the labor of others. You would give me only a fraction of the profits, if any at all. And if I lost any of it, you'd be really mad at me. I was afraid, of course. So I did the only reasonable thing And kept what you gave me in a safe place. So here's everything. I didn't lose any of it. Well, there's no words of commendation for this servant, only words of condemnation. The master says, You wicked and lazy servant. The master neither confirms nor denies his baseless accusation. He just cuts through the pathetic, self-serving excuse and condemns him according to his own logic. If you'd really feared me, you would have done the minimum, the safe. You would have done the easy thing to get what I asked for by putting it in the bank, where it could have at least earned some interest. This paraphrase paraphrase well in the message. If you knew I was after the best, why did you do less than the least? This servant misjudged his master's character and rejected his orders. So his consequences were very different than the first two. Since he did not exercise his gift, the master took his talent and gave it to the one with ten. His lack of faithfulness led to impoverishment. And the faithfulness of the first servant led to an increase in opportunities. And even more significant than losing his talent, he lost the relationship with his master as this good-for-nothing servant is thrown into outer darkness full of weeping and gnashing of teeth. When we look at this parable in light of its surrounding context, I think we can clearly understand its meaning. In the previous parable, the bridegroom whose return was also delayed is Jesus. And Jesus is the master in this parable. Currently, we are living in the time between our master's departure and his return. And even though it's been a long time, even though there's been a delay, he will come back. And when he does, there will be judgment and separation as all accounts will be settled we see very clearly here, as well as in the things Jesus is saying around this parable, we see very clearly that the return of Jesus divides. Jesus' return divides. In the previous parable, the division was between the five wise and foolish bridesmaids. In the verses to follow, it's between the sheep and the goats. And here, it's between the first two servants. And the third, some will receive commendation and an invitation to share in the bliss and joy of heaven with the Lord. And others will receive condemnation and be cast into hell. Some are invited into the kingdom. Others are banished from it. Well, what is this separation based on? Now, it may appear on the surface that the reason the first two servants go to heaven is because they performed well. And the third is sent to hell because he performed poorly. The first two got an A, the third got an F. But this parable is not teaching salvation based on works. The message of the whole of Scripture is very clear that there is nothing we can do to merit God's favor and be welcomed into the paradise of his eternal joy. Salvation is a gracious gift of God for all who repent and believe, and gifts are received. They're not earned. So so we must be very clear that salvation is based on faith. It's not based on works. The reason that the third servant was called wicked and condemned is that underneath his laziness, arrogance, false accusations, and failure to increase his money, the master saw a heart of unbelief. Like the five foolish bridesmaids, he did not have any oil in his lamp. Although the text doesn't tell us specifically I think there's good reason to conclude that this servant didn't even believe his master was going to come back. He did not believe his master to be who he really was, and therefore he did not love him. And if he didn't expect him to return, then why expend any effort working for him? The Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 4.8, That the Lord, the righteous judge, will award the crown of righteousness, which I think the crown of righteousness is just another way of saying his eternal joy in his presence forever. That will be awarded to all those who love his appearing. That's just another way Christians are described. People who love his appearing. The first two servants clearly loved their master's appearing. The third did not. The bearing of his talent revealed a heart of unbelief, and that, that is why he was condemned to hell. We've got to realize that the day of judgment is coming for all of us. Coming for all of us. Which of these two consequences would you rather receive? All the joys of your master forever and ever? Or eternal torment in darkness, separated from your master, along with all of his gifts? Well, of all that has been entrusted to you, nothing is more valuable than your life. Jesus said in John 12, 25, that if you love your life most, you will lose it. But if you give it away in submission to the Lordship of Christ, you will not be disappointed. You'll keep it. In Mark's gospel, Peter said to Jesus, see, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. As Jim Elliott, the missionary who was martyred for the cause of Christ, said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So it's worth it. Turning your life over to Christ is so, so worth it. It won't be easy. Jesus never promised that. But you cannot. You cannot and you will not lose if you let go of yourself through repentance and faith and venture everything on Christ who died on the cross in your place and rose from the dead. If you have questions about that, you want to talk with somebody about what it means to give your life to Christ through repentance and faith, we, we would love to talk with you further. Please let us know. Let someone know before you leave. And we want to share with you even more in private conversation, the joy, the joy of life with Christ. For those who profess faith, profess faith in Jesus, you would, you would call yourself a Christian. This parable is a reminder that the test of the genuineness of your faith is whether or not it's accompanied by works. So faith is not based on works. But wherever there is genuine faith in Christ's work, there will be works. Works will go with it. As James said very clearly, faith without works is dead. This third servant could claim allegiance to his master. I, we could ask him. I bet he would say, yes, I prayed the prayer. Yes, I believe. I think he would have. But his failure to work for his master revealed that his true loyalties were only to himself. As Jesus said in Matthew seven twenty one, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. So to assert that salvation is by by faith alone can never be an excuse for inaction because wherever there is genuine faith, there will be action. There will be a life that is actively pursuing obedience of the Father's will and faithful service to him. So this is serious stuff. Right? And, and as we recognize what's at stake here, I, we've got to ask ourselves the question, what are we doing with what we've been given? What are we doing with what we've been given? Since Jesus owns everything, our money, our possessions, our natural abilities, our spiritual gifts, our opportunities, and even trials, they, all of them, everything, comes to us from the Master's hands. Our whole life and everything that we have is his. So what kind of servant are you? How are you working to multiply his gifts for his glory? And I think the start of a new year is a great time for us to evaluate our stewardship. So let's then... Just take a few moments and consider how we're doing with some of the gifts that God's entrusted to us. Above all, we've been entrusted with the message of the kingdom, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just three chapters later, Matthew in chapter 28, we we read where our master gives us what is called the Great Commission, where he commanded us to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe everything he's commanded. This is what we're called to as a church and as individuals. So are you pursuing God's plan of multiplication with your neighbors, with your friends, classmates, co-workers, fellow church members? Or have you essentially buried this gift of The gospel in discipleship one of the ways in which we as a church seek to steward this commission from Christ is through our Bible classes which meet Sunday mornings at 915 this is one of the major ways we seek to equip you to be a good steward of this great commission and next Sunday begins a new quarter And the the two adult Bible classes will be the story of the Bible in discipling others. Both of those classes will be of help as you strive to be faithful in this call from your master to evangelize and to disciple. Consider your use of money in 2021. Does it evidence love for your master? Does it show an investment in the multiplication of God's kingdom? I've heard it said that money is like manure. It's good for nothing if left in a heap, it must be spread. If you own a house, are you using it to bless and serve others? How might you grow? In hospitality. Whether you are a child, teen, single adult, married without kids, parents, empty nesters, widow, your stage of life is a gift from God. How are you using the unique opportunities it provides to spread God's kingdom? Children are a precious gift and an awesome responsibility. Are you parenting or grandparenting for your own convenience, for your kids' worldly advancement, or with their eternal profit in view. Christ has given spiritual gifts to every Christian for the purpose of building up the body of Christ, which is his church, the epicenter, the headquarters, ground zero for God's purposes in the world. How are you using your gifts to serve others and grow God's kingdom through what he's doing in the local church. So I would encourage you to take some time in the coming days and evaluate your stewardship of these gifts and other gifts that God has entrusted to you. Now, as we consider the call in this parable to positively labor for the kingdom, I think there's three dangers we can see in this parable that that are really worth thinking about and worth considering carefully. The first is the danger of comparison. Danger of comparison. Did you catch why the master gave a different amount to each servant? Did you catch that? They didn't all get the same amount. Verse 15 tells us it was because They had different levels of ability. That was the basis for how much you chose to give each one of them. I I suspect that you're fully aware there will always be someone with a greater gifting than you. Right? You, You know that. You see that. It's really obvious to us. The thought might cross our mind from time to time that that's a bit unfair. But our infinitely wise God knows our level of ability. He created us after all. And therefore, he knows exactly how much he should give us. Our responsibility is to be faithful with what he's given us, not with what he's given to someone else. So we must not envy those with more resources or opportunities than we have, thinking that we would be more important or somehow look better if we had what they did. It's not about recognition in this life, but commendation in the next. And in all of this, we must focus on the fact that what God has given us is no small thing. We can be tempted to think, what I've been given by God is pretty small and pretty insignificant. That is not the case. We have been given an enormous stewardship in Christ. We possess all the mysteries of the gospel. We've been given all the inheritance in the spiritual places. We are all given the charge to spread the kingdom on earth by and through his spirit. I mean, you could say that everyone in Christ is a trust fund baby. So pray and strive to be faithful with what God has entrusted to you. And don't compare your gifts with others. Second danger is the danger of caution. The picture of faithful love to God that Jesus paints in this parable It's not a love that plays it safe. This is a radical, risky discipleship that ventures everything it has on behalf of the one who gave it. Now, of course, there is a place for caution and prudence in all areas of life, right? There's there's nothing to be gained by living in a way that is reckless and foolish. But this parable makes it clear that risk is at the very heart of God's kingdom purposes. Following Jesus necessarily entails the possibility of loss. So what does the risk meter of your Christianity read? Can you say that you're risking anything for Christ? It might be your reputation as you seek to share the gospel. It might be rejection by somebody to whom you're seeking to extend Christ's love. It could be resistance or further alienation for someone that you're called to confront with a hard but necessary truth from God. It could be the risk of a financial cushion so that you can give more generously. I heard one preacher say that if your risk meter is flat, you might be a better friend of the third servant than you realize. The third danger is the danger of complacency. The danger of complacency. As we wait and wait, and wait, and wait, and keep waiting for Christ's return, it can be really easy to lose a sense of urgency and become complacent. This parable makes it clear that we wait by working, and we must persist in diligence because our master could return at any time. Faithfulness to Christ is not equal praying a prayer and working for part of our lives when we have the time and energy and everything's working out. No, it's a whole life of serving our master in perpetual submission to his lordship. A few times over the years, I've heard people describe ways in which they used to serve and labor in God's work, but they kind of have concluded that they put their time in, and now it's finally time to take a well-deserved break. As one author noted, retirement has become a socially acceptable form of burying one's talent. As we age, the work of God that we're able to do and the opportunities we have for multiplication will certainly change. But our work of multiplication can also actually increase even as our energy decreases. So as servants of Christ, we should see these years as redeployment, not as retirement. God created us to work, and it wasn't until after sin that work became hard and futile. We will be working in heaven for all eternity. And it will be a joyful and a profitable labor. And according to this parable, the job our master will assign us in the new heavens and the new earth is related to what we do with what he's given us in this life. It's directly connected to how we're working Now, So we should never think that reaching a certain age entitles us to cease our labors for him. I heard a young pastor tell a story about a lady named Mama Ruth that he met while serving in a nursing home. While she was sitting by a window in her wheelchair, she asked him, Do you see those birds out there? Let me explain something to you. At my age, I'm 99, you know, I can't do a lot for Jesus. So one day I began to pray and I said, God, what can I do for you? And he brought to mind the scripture about how he feeds the birds. So now, she said, after every meal, I go around to the tables and I pick up all the breadcrumbs. I get someone to wheel me to the door and I ask them to scatter the crumbs outside the window. I then sit here by the window and when people come by and stop, I tell them that they need to see how faithful God is. That if he will care for the birds, he will care for them as well. And then I pray for them. No matter your age, no matter your circumstances, the call to faithfully work for our master does not ever end in this life. And the privilege of serving him will continue into the next. And I thank God for so many in our church I'm looking at many of you now, and there's others this is true of that I don't currently see, but I'm so thankful for those in our church who may have retired from their job, but they've not retired from their service to Christ. Please know that all you're doing in the service of this church is incredibly valuable. In your example, to those of us who are younger, including our children, is a massive encouragement. And it's a precious, precious gift. As we apply these points corporately, I think it's a good place to remind ourselves that throughout the entire history of this church, by God's grace, through really, really good leadership, we have sought to avoid the danger of complacency and the danger of caution. During the session at our orientation seminar on the vision of our church, Rocky Ranch, one of our non-staff elders, who is a powerful example of the first two servants, he talks about our ministry vision with these two attitudes the attitude of anticipation to promote and nurture a spirit of anticipation with regard to the outworking of God's purposes in and through our assembly in the attitude of engagement to com- to engage the cause of Christ in such a manner that we never retire from the need to live by faith in God's provision the first two servants of this parable, they had these attitudes. They anticipated God working through their labors and they remained engaged in the work until their master came back. And as we are currently as a church on the verge of the most financial stability in our short 36-year history, may God help us to not become complacent and never be unwilling to take risks, both with our resources as well as our ministry endeavors. As we remain on this path, God will continue to bless us as he has in the past. Well, as we rightly, I think, consider these dangers... It's important that we pause to recognize and rejoice in how much diligent multiplication work is happening in our church. So many of you are actively and faithfully serving with the audiovisual team or the security team, as an usher or a greeter, as a musician, an elder, a deacon, a deacon in training, or as a teacher. So many of you are faithfully serving in the kitchen, the nursery, children's church, kids club, YWAP, teen, young adult, or women's ministry. And in so many other ways, both seen and unseen. And you're engaged engaged regularly in God's work, in the mundane activities of life. As you take time to read the Bible with your kids and have meaningful and spiritual conversation and prayer with your wife. As you invite neighbors over to your home to get to know them better in hopes of sharing the gospel with them. As you use your freedoms as a single adult or married couple without kids to serve. As you show up on a Sunday night service Wednesday night growth groups or Bible classes, even though you're tired and really feel like staying home. In all of these labors and many, many more, remain steadfast, remain unmovable, continue to abound in the work of the Lord, persevere in your service and your prayer and in your holiness. To live for the kingdom is to labor for the kingdom. And as hard and exhausting as it sometimes feels, it's not in vain. It's not in vain because the day is coming, if we are in Christ, when we will hear our master say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Come, enter into the joy of your master. The pain and sacrifice in this life will all be worth it. So press on. Press on as spiritual tradesmen for the kingdom. And when you become discouraged, when you miss an opportunity, maybe a really big one as we all do, remember that your acceptance by God doesn't depend on any level of multiplication, but on Jesus Christ who served and lived perfectly. He bore all of your failures, misgivings, and shame, so we never have to receive the master's condemnation. As you struggle Cling to Christ. Cling to Christ and press on. God has made every one of us. He is our master and our Lord, and we are his servants. The question of this parable isn't whether or not you want to be his servant, but what kind of servant. Are you? The story of the thrown away mattress, it's really, really sad. The thought crossed my mind, it probably did yours as well. That would have been awful. How horrible it would have been to experience that. But even worse than losing all of your money because you stuffed it in a mattress is losing all of the good gifts God has given you and suffering eternal torment in hell because you failed to trust your master and you labored after that which is passing away rather than spending yourself on that which is eternal. Don't be a mattress stuffer, but be a venture capitalist Christian. Loving our king means spending ourselves for his kingdom. And as we wait expectantly, may we always work diligently. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this parable from Jesus. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to be affected and changed by its truth. Father, may we be your servants who are waiting expectantly May we long for your return, Jesus. And as we do, Father, keep us. Keep us from being trapped by the dangers of comparison, caution, and complacency. And may we be actively serving, actively working. May we be faithful stewards so that one day we'll receive your commendation. Thank you for Christ who bore our failures in our sin. Thank you for the forgiveness and life you've given us in him. And Lord, for any here who do not yet know of your commendation in Christ, who are still separated from you as your enemy, Father, please open their eyes and show them the superior joy of your presence and your pleasures through Christ we ask this. Amen.